This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Wales, with a Robin Mob, a Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. Ah, and I'm Mob. Fantastic. Well, this is, um, we're recording episode 30 of, uh, of Shenandoah. Hurrah, hurrah. Um, I don't know, we've had episode 1, which was significant. We've had episode 10, 20, 21. Uh, so this is now episode 30. And, um... Oh, we're heading into middle age, aren't we, Rob? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And then, you know, about episode 62, we die. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, well. Uh, yeah. So, um, it's a rather cold and cold and drizzly day in, um, in normally beautiful Blackburn South, but uh, today rather cloudy and, uh, and overcast. And, um... Kind of matches the weather of the Shenandoah 150 years ago. So, where... Is the Shenandoah wrong? The Shenandoah, 150 years ago today, is at uh, latitude uh, 40. Um, oh, they're in the roaring 40s, but this time they're in the roaring 40s up the top, not y- down the bottom. Yes, they're in the, the other roaring 40s, and they're at um, longitude 150 east. So from from last week, um, I think they're about 35 um, uh Latitude last week, so um, and and again one hundred and fifty longitude. So they're they're keeping they're heading straight north. Well, that's where the whalers are. That's, that's where the whalers are. So um, one hundred and fifty years ago this week. Um, now they are about. So they are, I guess, still in the North Pacific, but getting very north. In fact, uh, they're about about at the top of the um, the the Japanese home island, I believe it's called the 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 main uh, Japanese island, and they're heading towards. Now they need to go through the Kuril Islands. Oh, that's that's a chain of volcanic islands that runs from well, Japan, right across up to Alaska. Yes, yes, it does. So they 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 need to get through them um, to get into the Sea of Okhotsk. Good work, Rob. <laughs> I, I give you full marks for trying there. Into the Sea of Okhotsk, but um, it's it's almost um, now not that the events of 150 uh, years ago on the Shenandoah weren't fascinating, but um, um, I guess 70 years ago today, the, the these islands or, or getting on for 70 years ago, these islands and the the Japanese home islands were were having a, a, a rather horrendous time of it. Well, it was the uh, yes, it was the very end of World War Two, and uh, the Russians were closing in on on the J- Japanese home islands. They'd taken Sakhalin, which was the the top of them. Yes, and, and, and that remains Russian to this very day. That that's amazing. But yes, um, yeah, having a look on, on on the map on Wikipedia, the the, the Japanese you know, islands do do form one one con- continuous. Uh, Continuous chain and, well, and uh, an archipelago, I think, is the correct <laughs> the correct term. Yeah, the Kurils, the Kurils, and Sakhalin were uh, claimed by Japan and claimed by Russia at, at different times, and there'd been various treaties in the nineteenth century trying to resolve this and and so on. But 
it was pretty much resolved for good in, in 1945. Yes. Japan has actually given up claim to sovereignty of uh, Sakhalin. Okay. They, they did that, um, I think it might have been back in the 70s or something. So they've more or less said, yeah, okay, that, that belongs to Russia. Okay. Um, but they have not given up um, claim to sovereignty over the, the Kuril Islands, I believe. So back in 1865, when the Shenandoah's heading up there, uh, Sakhalin, uh, under the terms of a treaty that I think had been signed about 10 years early, said nationals of both countries, Japan and Russia, could occupy that island. Okay. And uh, then I think 10 years after the American Civil War, there was a treaty where, in which Japan surrendered all claim to Sakhalin to Russia yes. in exchange for the Kuril Islands, okay. which is where, uh, where the Shenandoah is headed. heading. And then uh, there was a little thing known as the uh, Russo-Japanese War in I, 1905. I have heard about the Russo-Japanese War, but I... Yeah, that that actually has some connection to Australia, believe it or not. And this is where it comes in. So uh, the Japan and Russia went to war, and the Russian fleet in the Baltic was sent to fight the Japanese. Now... Um, there's a bit of a problem with that because the Baltic is nowhere near Japan. Yes. So the Russian Baltic fleet had to circumnavigate the globe a little bit like the Shenandoah to get there. They weren't allowed to go through the uh, Suez Canal, so they had to go round uh, the bottom of Africa. Now, now why, why wouldn't Britain want to let the entire Russian Navy go through the <laughs> Suez I, I can't understand that. And then, of course, they went past Australia, which caused a great deal of uh, excitement, as you could imagine, with a Russian fleet. And we did talk about uh, when the Shenandoah visited Melbourne in 1865, there was great uh, fear and excitement about this warship coming. Mm -hmm. And the forts that were later built down at, uh, at Queenscliff were one built to stop enemy warships coming, in particular the Ruskies coming to take our gold. Oh. So there was again a lot of uh, excitement and confusion as the as the Russian Baltic fleet sailed past Australia on its way to Japan. So it went on this amazing railroad world journey, went up to uh, the Sea and of Japan and absolutely uh, got the stuffing kicked out of it. Yeah, because I, 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 yeah, it, it didn't end well for the Russians, that entire war. That, so that I, really I, didn't. And that, that more or less announced Japan as a, as a major world power. It had uh, modernised. Yes. When they... In the new Meiji era, it was called. They had a, a new emperor who came in, got rid of the old shoguns, and, and modernized. What, was that the Meiji Restoration? That was indeed. Ah, oh, I, I know no more about it than that. But please, please it's go cool on. Like it's it. a cool name. Yeah. So the uh, Meiji Restoration had modernized Japan. They had a modern fleet. A lot of the ships were actually built by the British, which is interesting. They got around the Brits and. The Russian fleet came up in the Battle of uh, Toshima, it was called, and Admiral Togo was the uh, the leader of the Japanese. Oh, we're going to hear about him again. Yeah. And the result was fairly decisive, you'd have to say. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Japanese had a couple of torpedo boats sunk. Yes. The Russians had uh, about 20, 21 ships sunk, including six battleships. That's that's not that's not Battle of Jutland even honours at the end of the day. Yeah, that that is uh... no, that, that that is they had their absolute asses uh, handed to them, and 
that announced Japan as a major world power. That then led to the 19... Or was one of the causes of the 1905 revolution in, in Russia. Oh, OK, including Bloody Sunday, when the serfs marched on the Winter Palace to ask the little father for, for bread, and they got shot instead. Yes, and uh, the battleship Potemkin, the yes. very famous... Uh, Movie. Oh yes, yeah. yeah I, I, the steps. I, I think I think I saw that movie when I was about twelve, and I still have in my mind they have a bit where you know the um, the the, the, the sailors are, are yelling out that there are maggots in their meat again, and of course um, you, know, you, you go to a shot of a side of beef with maggots crawling inside it, and uh, it, it's actually quite an amazing movie. You know? Yes, and I believe the officers say, "Just go and eat it. It's only rancid." Oh, okay. I think it was the phrase. Okay. Yes. So the 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 area is a very interesting one, and it's been fought over and argued and so on. So Japan, of course, got it all back after 1905. Okay. Yes. As you could imagine, but then uh, in 1945, it uh, flipped back the other way. Japan still does claim some of the uh, Kurile Islands. Fascinating. Now, um. I just had a quick look at um, now because they're they're kind of in the middle of the ocean. It's a bit difficult to get a reading on uh, the current temperatures. And um, our two sources, um, Mr. Whittle's journal and Mr. Mason's journal, talk about the weather, but not the temperature. Probably. And Mr. Mason is busy making himself pants. Uh, so, yeah, he's another pants pair of pants. Cold. Yes, yes. He's so making another pair of pants. He's making. Look, 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 look let's let's not. Let, let's save the best for later. Have I given away a spoiler there, Rob? <laughs> well, I, I think given the amount of time we spent on the first pair of pants he made, we, we might yeah, not really go too, into too much detail about his next pair of pants. Um, but um, I, I did have a quick look on... Um, so we, we don't know what the temperature was 150 years ago, but we do know that uh, there was squalls and rain and a bit of a storm. But I had a look on the, uh, the weather forecast for Hokkaido, which is um, one of the Japanese islands. It's actually... 12th of May, it's actually 18 degrees oh, up in... Oh, balmy. Balmy, because, again, we, we, we've got to remember that it, it's summer up in Japan now, so despite the fact that uh, those islands are, are really very far north, um, it is the middle of summer. Um, so it's actually a nicer day um, up in the, the far north Pacific uh, today than it is, in fact, down in gloomy, gloomy old Melbourne, oh, which is, you, you know... Um, so... Um, but mind you, um, for, for, for next Sunday, uh, the, the, the forecast is for, for nine degrees. So if you're currently, you know, people are currently holiday in, in Hokkaido, it's, it's going to get a, a lot colder. But, uh, returning to the weather of, uh, of 150 years ago today, uh, or it, in fact, it's actually, um, 150 years ago tomorrow, but I, I do want to read this, uh, this excerpt from, uh, from Mr. Mason's journal. So, Ooh, well, pants, well, pants. Oh, look, what would Mr. Mason's journal be without pants? And Charles Dickens. And, and Charles Dickens, exactly. Um, so, uh, now, Sunday evening, May the 14th, 6 p.m. Blowing a gale of wind from the westward with a heavy sea, ship lying to under two close reef top sails, main spencer and fore and main storm sail stay sails reefed, she behaves tolerably well and is comparatively dry, but anything from comfortable. It is very amusing to hear old sailors talk about different ships they have been in. I often ask for information, this being my first experience at sea, whether this ship would be considered a dry ship in a gale or a wet, whether she is a good sea boat or not. No two will tell you the same thing, so I have long given up all hopes of learning anything that sim are simply as an amusement. 
For my own part, judging from my limited experience, I've come to this conclusion, viz, that although some ships are more disagreeable and wetter than others in a gale of wind, no ship can be either dry or comfortable under such disadvantageous circumstances. On this point, I am like the lover of whisky, who said that some whisky was better than others, but he never saw any that was bad. Friday was a tolerably fine day, but still blowing a moderate gale, heavy sea and cold weather. Yesterday, Saturday, we had some excitement, but rather expensive, as it cost us a main topsail, nearly new. I had kept the forenoon watch on deck, ship going before the wind about five knots, under very short sail, blowing a moderate gale. Oh, that rhymes. Excuse me, that's me. At eleven, I went into the hold to get up the grog for dinner, and while there, I soon perceived by the motion of the ship that the breeze was freshening. All the afternoon watch I was at work in the after hole breaking out provisions, so I did not see much of what was going on, but knew from the motion of the ship that she had been hauled by the wind and was lying on the port tack. Uh, now, now, we're getting to the pants. Okay. Oh, good, good. I've been waiting with bated <laughs> breath. After dinner, I was trying to do some sewing in my room, which, by the way, is now as dark as the hinges of purgatory. This necessitated the use of a candle. The candlestick was most provokingly unsteady and could not be persuaded to remain on the table, but every he heavy lee roll would tumble it off into my bunk, thereby greasing my blankets or into my lap to the no small damage of the new cloth pants oh, I was making. No, no. no. <laughs> My small stock of patience was nearly exhausted when I was interrupted in this pleasing pursuit of the candlestick by the noise of a sail flapping about. I jumped on deck to see what was up and found that the lee clue of the main topsail was gone up, but the clue line was not going up so easily the whole sail went up the spout in next to no time. I, I, I love the way that, that, that basically, you know, yeah, mischief of Mason sees, sees yeah, candle grease getting on his new pair of cloth pads. Um, Does that mean he was running up um, onto deck in his underpants, by the way? No, 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 because he's made two pairs of pants. Oh, of course, so he's, so he's of wearing course. his old pair of pants, and, and he's, he's making his new pair of pants. He's, I think I think pouring candle grease on your new pants could cause a most unfortunate stain. It could. On the other hand, it might make them fairly waterproof. Well, yeah. Well, interestingly, uh, Whittle's journal for the same time does talk about very similar weather. His main concern, though, is the fact that uh, a few more crew have had their six-month service come up yes, and have decided uh, they really don't want to keep going with this and they'd like to get off at the next European port. This next group was a little bit cleverer. They said they would continue their service until the next European port. If you remember the last group last week who said, uh, we, we've had enough of this, the Frenchmen. Yes. Um, they were going to continue serving without pay until the next European port. Obviously, their knowledge of geography was fairly, uh, fairly poor. These fellows were a bit cleverer and said, we'll keep serving until the next European port. So uh, Whittle talks about here that, uh, thank goodness the last six months men uh, have had this term come up. Um, they have taken from our 104 leave 92 souls all told belonging to the ship. From these, after deducting 25 officers and 12 boys, stewards and cooks, 37, leave us with 55 sailors all told, including firemen and marines. 
This seems small, but when it be compared to the 46 old toll that we started with, it will be seen that we are well off. Well, it, it also confirms that without the 42 people that they got in Melbourne, they that, they would not be where they would. They wouldn't have been able to get up to the Sea of Okhotsk and would not have been able to take the fight to the Yankee Whalers. So, again, it, it really... Um, it really yes. does confirm how how absolutely. And, and on that note, um, I, th- I think I should do a uh, additions, amendments, uh, etc. From oh, um, please from, do Rob. from from a previous week. Um, now, when when the Shenandoah was uh, was in Melbourne, um, we talked uh, quite uh, quite a lot about uh, on the very last days that uh, the Shenandoah was was in Melbourne. The the U.S. Consul Blanchard was uh, was running around. Um, Running around Melbourne, uh, trying to tell any any legal person that they could that he could possibly find. He needed a magistrate to get an injunction he to stop the, the ship from leaving. Yes, and and one of the uh, one of the magistrates that he went to was Henry Field Gurner, who was the um, solicitor general, the solicitor general for the for the colony of uh, of Victoria, and I, I believe it may have been um, uh, Henry Gurner who who said, "Oh no, no, you, you need you need to go to the water police or, or you need to," you know, and basically gave he, them he the runaround. Gave him the brush off because he wanted to go and have his dinner. His dinner at the Melbourne Club. Yes, in other words, he wanted to go on a Friday afternoon to go and drink. Now, now the thing is, um, uh, we we speculated at that time uh, that um, there's a, there was a very famous racehorse in Australia called Gurners Lane, and uh, Gurners Lane is famous for winning the Caulfield and Melbourne Cup double. In um, 1982, they're the two big horse but races. They are the two biggest horse races uh, in Australia, if, if not the Southern Hemisphere, to be to be quite frank. Um, now, so um, and I'd like to, to give a shout out to listener Barbara for, for alerting me to this. But um, so indeed, now Gurners Lane is a was a very famous racehorse, but it was named after a real laneway in Melbourne called Would You Believe. Gurner's Lane, and um, and was that named after Mr. Gurner? It was named after Mr. Gurner because his house was between William Street in Melbourne and what is now Gurner's Lane. I'm not sure what it was before it was Gurner's Lane, and um, but the Australia Club is is again between between William Street and Gurner's Lane, and the um, the the racecourse was the racecourse was owned by members of the Australia Club. Um, all very well and good, except. The Australia Club is on the site of, of uh, Henry Gurner's house that they knocked down to build the Australia ah. Club. So, yeah. He's... But Gurner wasn't a member of the Australia Club. He G- was a member of the Melbourne Club. Gurner was absolutely a member of the Melbourne Club. And in fact, um, th- this is what a club man he was. Um, yeah, he was uh, Solicitor General of, uh, of Victoria for, for, for many, many years. Uh, he retired in 1980 and... 1980. He's a, he, he served a long time there, Rob. He retired in 1880. Ah, thank, thank you very much, Michael. And during a brief recall as Crown Solicitor, he died at the Melbourne Club on 17 April 1883. Wow! So he, he was a club man to the uh, to the <laughs> to the very end to the very end, and then you know. A hundred years later, some upstarts at the Australia Club, you know, knocked down his house and uh, and named their, their horse after him. So um, there you go. I'm sure that's a very complicated, established you know, Melbourne uh, you know, insult in there somewhere. But, now, we also had a query from another listener. Nick Feast, yes, Lister left a comment on our website. Um, 
we, we seem to be a bit of bit confused about how many uh, Ascension Islands there are, or well, perhaps not how many there are, but where they are. Well, there's there's two. There's the Ascension Island that is uh, known today, and that's the one in the Atlantic Ocean, which uh, the Shenandoah went past on the way down to Tristan de Cunha. Cunha, yes. Uh, but the Ascension Island that they talked about is where Ponape is. Yes, but I, I think I think um, where because uh, uh, Nick Nick Feast uh, in his comments said that we we are talking about an island between um, Africa and Australia. So I, I think at some point we must have uh, got some pools which the um, Shenandoah did visit. Uh, which is between Africa and Australia, and it's the one that looks like the lair of a, of a James, oh, the James Bond, Bond the James Bond Sioux villain, and it's where uh, the Shenandoah famously picked up a picked up a penguin. Um, so I think at some point we must have got a bit confused, but yes, so there are two Ascension Islands, one in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific, and uh, St Paul's is neither of them. Yes, and the one in the Pacific isn't called that anymore. Um, this is because the Spanish were the ones that discovered a lot of these islands and named them after the various religious holidays oh. of the particular time when they when they got there. That's why there's also a Pentecost island. Oh, okay. And and so on. Uh, you know, as as I think I mentioned before, if the British had discovered these islands, there'd be the Tuesday Bank Holiday <laughs> Island and, and things like that. But um, no, that that's why it was was called that. And uh, Ascension, uh, the Ascension as. Obviously, the the ascension of of Greek Jesus Christ uh, into heaven is um, observed on the fortieth day after Easter, as, so as I, everybody knows. So, you could perhaps assume that the first uh, Spanish explorers who went there discovered these islands the fortieth day after after Easter. Yep. In actual fact, the reason why it was called Ascension is because when the Spanish founded their uh, settlement there, which ha- happened some time afterwards. And their settlement was known as uh, La Colonia, or yes. the Colony. So they weren't really into imagination there. No, it was settled on Ascension Day. Okay, so it was not discovered, but 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 the the settlement was. But on. it was it's still fixed around a particular date. So so the Spanish were obviously they, had, they probably had such a worldwide empire they were beginning to run out of names. I think if you call your colony the colony, yeah, you're not really stretching things very well, far. Well, maybe they had a they had a town called the colony in every colony. <laughs> who, who knows? Who knows? Um, now, so Michael, we've had um, you know some very interesting discussions about the, the history of the part of the world that uh, we've that actually been all over the world today, Rob. Well, we've well, been to Japan. We've been to Australia. We've we, we followed the Russian fleet around the entire world. Uh, to be sunk. <laughs> to be sunk, yes. What we should also And, and we, do, we've even had an update on a new pair of Minshipman Mason's pants. I, I think that's the highlight. But it's probably also uh, important to just note what is going on back in North America yes. at this time. Mm. And it's, it's pretty significant. So um, May the 10th. Jefferson Davis is captured. Now, now I've heard a rumour that Jefferson Davis was captured in women's clothing. Now, is, is that is that a nasty rumour spread by? My understanding is that is a bit of a nasty rumour that's just spread to to, oh, to denigrate okay. him. But okay. yes, he he was captured on May the tenth, and President Johnson yep. on that same day declared armed resistance at an end. Oh. Yes, okay. Okay, so we've got a bit of a problem here because we have this Confederate warship <laughs> heading north up to strike a winning blow. Who, who are armed, yes. Yes, yes. so that's, that's a bit of a problem for them. So 
but pretty I'm... much the civil war is is over now. There's there's one last battle that's fought, or one last significant fighting, which is on May the twelfth and thirteenth, and that was known as the Battle of Palmito Ranch in Texas. And down there, uh, it seems that the Union and Confederate forces had been observing some sort of unofficial truce. Yep. Since uh, hearing about Appomattox and and so on, but. For some reason, the Union colonel ordered an attack on the Confederate camp. And, you know, some claim that he wanted to get that last bit of glory before, you know, the war was absolutely over. But the attack happened, and it, it happened over two days. And there were some... The the, cattle, the, the um, casualties weren't that, that big. Only a few people were killed, but it did lead to one... Important for them, though. Uh, pretty important for them. Particularly important for poor private John J. Williams of the 34th Indiana, because oh, he is believed to have been the last man killed in combat in the war. And you really don't want to be that guy, do you? No, no. That, that's. Um, I, I think Wilfred Owen, the English poet, was um, killed pretty much on Armistice Day in, oh, in 1918. Or, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe just before Armistice, but rather bad luck for literature. Oh, so, so poor, poor chap. Yes, so that was that was pretty much the last serious fighting. Uh, we spoilers here: the Shenandoah is going to at least fire a blank at some point up in the yep. up in the the Arctic. Yep. But um, this is the last point that anybody actually gets hurt. So, pretty significant things happening back in 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 the US, and very very soon. Um, I think it's um, on May the 14th, so we're just going a little bit ahead of ourselves with the date here. President Johnson issues his amnesty for pretty much everybody engaged in the late rebellion. Except, as, as it will become plain, except for the crew of the Shenandoah. Well, yes, you, you have to lay down your arms to do that. They're, they're not really doing that up there. So big things happening back in, in, uh, in North America. And uh, the Shenandoah doesn't know anything about it. But importantly, all of this is being written up in newspapers. Ah, which which will eventually get up to. We'll to... eventually get up up their way. But yes. spoilers, not for quite some not, time. Not for quite some time. <laughs> so uh, I think that even though uh, not much is happening with the crew of the Shenandoah at the moment, apart from the disaster with the pants. Yes, the pants and the candle grease. Uh, that, that, that sounds like an... an, an an Edward Lear limerick, actually. It does, it does, or a tongue twister. Um, very significant back back in, in North America for us. Well, well, on that note, um, well, this, this, as you said earlier, this has really been a global podcast uh, this week, but um, uh, we've come to the end of, a, of another, another episode. So um, without further ado, um, this has been Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales with a Robin Mob, a Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. That means I'm Bob. And tally-ho. And uh, ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>